1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read to you verse 9 through 11. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard, which is very close in this passage, almost identical to your ESV. I just happen to have the New American Standard with me. And after that, we'll pause and pray. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and to his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly laws which wage war against the soul. Father, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity, the privilege, the awesome privilege of coming before you and before your word, before your people, to speak an infallible word, a holy word, as a matter of fact, through unholy lips. I marvel that you dare to do that, Lord. That is all because of your grace and mercy. I ask you that you be with your speaker at this time. You know his weaknesses. You know his insufficiencies. You know his sins. But he's not here this morning on his own behalf, but on behalf of the merits of Christ and in your name through your grace. Hide him, Lord, right now behind your cross so that he will not be seen. And all that we can see is you and you alone. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This portion of the scriptures is uh, part of the first letter of Peter. First Peter, letter that he wrote to his followers in the first century. It's a precious letter. But here, in a very short way, he gives us two main ideas. And I don't know how many of you are able to see them quickly, but they kind of jump out of the jump off the pages of the page that we just read. Peter first tells us who we are, and then he tells us what we are supposed to do. They are very simple, but very profound ideas. And I want to try, with the help of the Lord, to unpack that for you. I don't know if you notice that our text starts with that word, but. It is a very common word. It's a word that you all know, you all use. We, we pronounce it so much that quite frequently when we read it, especially in the Bible, we go over it and we don't pay much attention to it. And that word is crucial in many of the texts. Many times, if you omit that word, you miss the main point that is being raised. And I want to show you how it works here for us. That is a word of contrast, usually. It's, it's trying to compare two things. And many times, that's the way or the reason why it's there. 
And when Peter says here, but you, that you there in the original language is emphatic. And the reason why it's emphatic is because through that phrase, but you, Peter is trying to contrast what we just read with what he had previously said in verses 7 and 8. And I want to tell you what he said in those two verses. But that's why when he's finishing, when he's finished with 7 and 8, then he goes, but you, there is a contrast. So he has started telling us in verse 7, um, this is, this precious value then is for you who believe. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became this very cornerstone and a stone of a stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, in other words, you are not of that group. You are not of that kind. You belong to a different group of people. There, there, are, there are some who did not believe. And for those, Christ became a stumbling block. Christ became a rock of offense like he was for the Pharisees all the time. The text that you have in the ESV says, So the honor is for you who believe. Just the simple fact that you and I can believe is an honor. And he's going to tell, tell us why in a little bit in this text even. It's an honor because we did not work for it. We did not achieve that status on our own effort. We did not do anything to deserve it. It's something that has been given to us. But you, you are of a different nature. The unbelieving heart of those who stumbled and fell to the ground is being compared now to this other group to which you and I belong. And that's why the but and the you there are emphatic in the original language. Now, with that in mind, let me show you to what group of people we belong, how we are different than the first group. In the first place, we want you to see that we are different because you are a chosen race. You see, it's an honor to be part of that group because we were chosen in the first place. And we were not chosen because we were so smart that we figure out how salvation works. We were not chosen because we were so holy that God was impressed with us. None of that. We were not desiring God. We were not seeking after God. We didn't want, we did not want anything to do with God. We were away from God, running, running further away from Him. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We didn't want anything of that kingdom. And they want, and then one day God, out of His infinite mercy, He set His affection on us just because. So we are a chosen group of people out of mercy. We did not have one single condition in us that will make us deserve the serving of mercy. We were bought at an infinite price. 
the price of the blood of the Son of God. God incarnate gave his blood to purchase us. And when you look at what we are told about our redemption in the New Testament, it is amazing all that we are told. There are different words that are used in the original to refer to our redemption. One of them is agorazo, which means we were purchased, and it was a, a word used when you purchase something in the marketplace. So we were in this marketplace of a slavery, and we were purchased out of there. And then, not only we were purchased out of there, but the New Testament tell us that, or tells us that we were exagorazo, which means we were purchased to be let free. And we cannot go back ever again to the place where I was found. And that was done at the expense of Christ's life. Why? Because he pleased God to do so. For no other reason. And then the enmity that was between God and man was abolished. It was finished. When Adam ran, ran away from God, he turned his back on God. And then sin made God turn his back on Adam and his descendants. But then in Christ, God turned his face toward man. And now man can turn his face back to God. But God moved first. And did it in his son and through his son. And that is the reason and how you and I have been chosen. Friends, to not to give your life to Christ. And to live your life completely for him, in him, through, through him, is an act of ungratefulness. And that's exactly what God says in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks to him. They did not recognize God for what he is, not did man recognize God as the giver of all the blessings and the life and everything else that he has. So man has been ungrateful to God. Now they may sound not as bad when we were unbelievers. Although it is bad enough deserving condemnation. But once we come to know God and we have been purchased by his blood. How can you and I not live our life completely devoted to his purpose and cause? We are a chosen race. Secondly, I want you to see that we are different not only because we are a chosen race, but also because we are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, the priest and the king were two different kinds of people. The priest was not allowed to carry out any kingly responsibilities and the kings were not permitted to carry out any priestly functions. But in Christ, the two of them came together. They joined together. And now in Christ, we are both at the same time. We are a royal priesthood. The king let the people, let the nation the priest spoke to God on behalf of the people. And now we are called a royal 
priesthood. Why? Because we are supposed to offer living sac- ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable unto God. My life, my complete life, is supposed to be a holy offering and a sacrifice to my God. It's not what I do on Sunday that is supposed to be a sacrifice only. It's not what I do on Wednesday or any other church activity. It's what I do with, with my entire life. It's supposed to be a one single, holy, worshipful sacrifice to my God. And after what he did, and what he continues to do, how can we do any less than devote our lives to his will and to his purpose and to his Cause. That would be to deny our priesthood. It would be to make a mockery out of it. And I don't think you and I want to do that. I want to believe that you don't want to do that. Thirdly, I want you to see that we are different because we are not only a chosen race and a royal priesthood, but also we are a holy nation. Hagios is the word in, in the Greek. And it means to be set apart. To be separated unto something. Not only to be set apart from something, but to be set apart to something for a special purpose. You think about the, in the Old Testament, the musical instruments were separated to be played only in the temple. They couldn't be used for any other purpose or reason. They were wholly separated. Indeed, that word is repeated over 200 times in the New Testament and is used to, uh, to apply, it is applied to almost anything that relates to God, like the Holy Bible, the Holy City, uh, His Holy Name, the Holy Spirit. is actually Paul's preferred name or term to refer to those who have been saved. That's the word. And now we are told we are that holy nation. We have been separated from sin and unto holiness. In the New Testament, it is not good enough to be, to be separated from something bad. You need to move in the direction of something good. For example, when Paul writes to the Philippians, he tells the Philippians, he who steals do not, uh, do not do any, do not do it any longer. That's not good enough in that text. Paul says, listen now, but rather labor with his own hand so he will have something to share with those who are in need. Not only stop stealing, start working and help those who are in need. When we come to Christ, it's not enough that he pulled pull me away from sin. I need to make every effort to move in the direction of holiness in my life. Why? Because I represent a holy God. For no other reason. And God has an aversion to sin. And therefore, he doesn't relay well to sinful people. Including his son when he, when he was at the cross and took our sin upon his shoulder. He turned away from him. When the people of Israel sinned in the desert, God told Moses, I'm not going con- to continue with you. And Moses needed to plead it, to plead with God so that God will continue with them. No, I'm not going to continue with you, Moses. Why? Because I continue with you, I'm going to destroy you. God has an aversion and a difficulty in dealing with sins. His eyes are so pure, the word says, that he cannot even look at it. 
but he looks as at us through his son and that's how it is feasible for him to relay to us so we need to move in the direction of holiness in our life why because we are a holy nation now listen peter is not telling us what we should be peter doesn't tell us you should be a royal priesthood because of your call he doesn't tell us you should be a holy nation given uh, what God is trying to do with you. Peter says, you already are. So start living like you are one because you are. If you do not, it's, be it's not because you are not, it's because you're not willing. Fourthly, I want you to see that we are different, not only because we are a chosen raid, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, but also because we are a people for his own possession. You are not your own, brothers. I am not my own. And that simple statement has massive implications. If I am not my own, I cannot continue to live for my own Agenda. Why? Because I don't belong to myself any longer. That's why it's not about me. That's the title of my message today. It's not about me. No, it's about the one who purchased me and to whom I now belong to. That's what life is all about. And until we get that and we live that way, life will not make any sense, will not produce any satisfactions at all. Because it's not about me. Because I was purchased, I cannot continue to live for my own agenda. That would be rebellion, I said. I cannot continue to build my own kingdom. That would be defiance. And I cannot continue to ignore my call. That would be a sin. This is serious. Extremely serious. We don't have a light God. We have a light Coke. And they light everything else. And we will like Life to be light, but life is deep because it has nothing to do with me. In eternity past, God figured out life. Can you imagine the infinite wisdom of God formulating life in his mind? And now with we, with these tiny little minds, trying to figure out what to God, his complete wisdom. To create. It's not about me. It's not about you. And if we don't get that right. We will always be unsatisfied. All the time. Now the fact that we belong to God. That's where we are now in this text. We are a people. A possession for. It's, we are God's own possession. That gives us. An infinite value. Not because of what we are. Because we are nothing in ourselves but because we belong to who we belong to. Let me illustrate it this way. A few years ago, I read that the golf, um, what do you call it? the rods? Is that what you call them? I don't play golf. Clubs. clubs. You see that I don't play golf. <laughs> don't even know the name of those. The golf clubs. Thank you all. Um, that belonged to uh, J.F. Kennedy at one point were sold for $175,000. So I asked the question, $175,000 for something that I don't even know what the name is? <laughs> what were they made of? Gold? No. 
So what's the value of this? Oh, the person that they belong to at one point. Now let me tell you, we, we don't belong to J.F. Kennedy or Barack Obama. We belong to the creator and sustainer and redeemer of the universe. And not for one time, for a whole, for the entire eternity. From eternity past to eternity future, we belong to that God. And that plays over us an incredible price. So high that his son died for us and paid the price. Not because of who we are, but rather because of who we belong to. We were given from God the Father to God the Son as a love offering from the Father to the Son. It was God's will that the Son will not lose any of those that you had given me. When an eternity pass. That's my love offering to you my son. And the son hath been honoring the father. In purchasing those people. Look how the psalmist says it. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen. For his own inheritance. Blessed is that nation. Who are they? Us. It is a great blessing just to belong to God because that means he will take care of us, which he has. He will, he will guide us. He will teach us. He will be patient. He will be gracious. He will sustain us. He will preserve us. It is a great blessing to be God's possession. Now you have an idea of what you are. Now Peter wanted you and me to be clear in what we are so that he can tell us now what we are supposed, supposed to do. And that's very important. Before I do anything, I need to know where I am so I know what to do. And he's, he's telling us right here, this is the second idea. So we are all of that. We were made into all of that. A, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, uh, a chosen race, uh, God's own possession. We were made every single one of those things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have no other reason for living, no other reason for your existence, other than proclaiming the excellencies, the virtues of him who called you and me from darkness to light. Could you imagine? That simplifies my life in an incredible way. I have one purpose in my whole life. I don't have any other one. I remember years ago, I think it was during the Bush administration, Someone asked the head of the staff in the White House and said, your job must be very difficult. Because being the head of that staff of the most powerful and complicated nation in the world must be very, very difficult. And he said, as a matter of fact, my job is very simple. And the person went, what? He said, yeah. The only thing I need to do is to please the president. Friend, your job in life and purpose is very simple. You got only one thing to do is to please your Lord, the president of the universe. I don't have any other purposes. This is it. But it also tells me how an incredible responsibility that is. 
Because everything I do in my life, it doesn't matter whether you're a missionary, a pastor, or a lawyer, your purpose is still the same. It's right there. Peter told us what we are. If you are a Christian lawyer, you are part of that holy nation. You are part of that uh, royal priesthood. You are part of that uh, God's own possession. You are part of that um, holy nation that we talked about. So as a lawyer, your main purpose, as a physician, my main purpose for exercise, exercise, exercising my career was not money, was not fame, although I lived for that at the beginning of my career. It was not for a name. And now that I'm a Christian, I have the same, same reason for my medical career than a pastor does. We just do it differently in a different place, in a different way. And that is so hard to get it across. In my church, I deal with this all the time. Last night, I was speaking to a friend of mine, Leo. I stand in his house just about this. Um, because once I understand what I am, I don't, have, I don't have any choice. I have to do that for which I was made into that in the first place. Let me summarize for you before we move on again all that we are. It is a privilege to be a chosen group of people. Not chosen by a president of a nation, but chosen by the redeemer and creator and sustainer of the world. It is quite humbling to think about you as a royal priesthood. It, it kind of sends chills down my spine to think that's all that we are. That's incredible. It is not a small thing to be called a holy nation. And it is a delight to know that we are God's possession. Those are the reasons why my call is so high. That those are the reasons why my call, are, my call is so high. And those are the same reasons why the caller has the right to impose upon my life any demands, desires that he has in his heart. Anyone who has done all that God has done for us has that right. But he's the only one who has done it and can do it. We just need to recognize it. You and I need to live a life according to our calling. Otherwise, we are not living our call and you will never be fulfilled, satisfied, joyful, living somebody else's call. Let me tell you how Christ said it in terms of our place in the world. Because he made us all of that and didn't take us out of the world. He left us right there. So Christ said it this way. You are, you are the light of the world. A citizen on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Listen now, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's exactly what Peter said in a different way. To proclaim the excellencies, Christ says, to glorify your Father who is in heaven. How? By the way, men see the works that you do in his name for his glory. Now, if after our conversion, I live a life of isolation, I live a life um, away from the world, away from the mission field, which is the world of unbelievers, 
I'm not carrying out my mission the way Christ said it or the way Peter is telling us. Because you can't do that away from the unbelievers. You need to do it in the middle of them so they may see and hear the word. Notice how I said it, that they may hear and see the world. The unbeliever, the unbelieving world quite frequently has heard the word a lot. But not always they have seen it in our lives. And you need to hear it and you need to see it. You need to model it. That's why Christ's life was so powerful. They heard his teaching and they saw his living together, combined, congruently. And they went, wow, who is this man that speaks with such an authority? So that's what we need to do. Now think about that lamp that I mentioned to you. That was a text out of the Sermon of the Mount. Um, when I was little, I used to go to my grandma's uh, country house. And they have those kerosene lamps. And they had a glass chimney. And from time to time, the chimney will become dark from the smoke. Now the light will not go out as well. Or the wick will become, will become so burned that needed to be cut, trim, and then the lamp, the light will be seen again with all the, its intensity. That lamp represents our life, our lives, all of us. And sometimes my glass chimney, which is the way I'm living, is just too dark because sinful patterns in my life. I'm still the world. Christ said, when he was here, I am the light of the world. When he was living, you are the light of the world. It's his light that we are reflecting, but he says, you are the light of the world. Now, that light might not be going out as well from my life because the glass chimney is, is dark, is smoky. Or my weak, the, the thing that gives me life, um, the word of God, his truth, is just kind of burned now. It is, I, I heard it so long ago, that it doesn't give me any passion. It's not burning within my heart. And if it's not burning within my heart, it's not going to burn in anybody else's heart. So we need to burn for God. We need to be consumed for God. We need to be pulse-like. He was burned until the very last day of his life. So we need to look at our lives and see... Uh, how well am I doing? Listen to a Spurgeon. Listen to this question. Very, very convicting. Is it not more sinful to have the light and not to act consequently than being totally in the darkness? What is more, more sinful, Spurgeon says? The fact that this person doesn't have the light or the fact that I do have it, but I don't shine. You can see how incredible this call and responsibility is upon you and me who have believed. The dissatisfaction that so many experience today all over the world, it has to do with the fact that most people and many times many believers even are not living the purpose for which they were created. Just one quick number. Japan. Um, if I preach, speak for about an hour, in that time, four people would have committed 
suicide in Japan. One every 15 minutes. The, one of the most technologically advanced country in the world. Why? Because people are living aimlessly in the world without purpose, without meaning, without knowing where they're going, beating the air. And you cannot find any of that in any other place other than Christ. A life without purpose is a life without joy. And, and I need to ask myself, if my joy is gone, what's, what is the purpose for which I am living for? A life with multiple purposes is a very complicated life. But a life with one single purpose, focus on God, is a powerful life. And only God can focus all my gifts, talent, opportunities, uh, all that he gives me into one single direction. Let me see if I can use these illustrations for you. We have these lights here and, you know, the laser beam light. What's the difference? Because one does just this, which is il which illuminating this place, and the other one has the power to penetrate surfaces. You, you would think is the composition of the light. It's not. Both lights are composed exactly of the same thing, photons. Now, the photons of these lights are all dispersed in different directions, and that's what it does. It illumines this place. The photons of a laser beam are all uh, directed in one single direction, and that gives the light its power. You take a believer... Gifted by God, equipped by God, gifts, talents, opportunities, and the rest. And only God can focus that life in one single direction. And when he does that, then God does powerful things through him or through her. Because you cannot be so dispersed in the world that you don't even know what you're doing or for what you're living Uh, it was not an accident that Christ said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of these other things, dressing, food, all of these other things that we worry about all the time, they will be added on to you. He didn't say, Seek ye first the addition and then the kingdom will be given to you. No, he's trying to focus my life, telling me, Let me simplify your life. Miguel, let me simplify your life for you. Yes, how? how? You got one, one worry. What is the Lord? Seek ye first the kingdom. The rest is my problem. In, in a way it is. Let me, let me illustrate it. I'm sorry I'm using a few of these illustrations. But I think it, unless we make it um, plain and, and, and give you daily illustrations, sometimes we just don't see it. If you are a father and you have a seven, eight years old, a year old son... You say, son, I want you to go to the uh, convenience store next door and bring me five pounds of sugar. What is the responsibility of the son to obey? Whose responsibility is to provide the money to bring the sugar? It's not the son. He's only eight. It's the father. So my responsibility is to obey. And God will be added the things that I need in the middle of my obedience. When we were living U.S. in 1997, we left without any missionary umbrella, just my wife and I. 
And people used to say, but you need to go with an organization. And say, yeah, I recognize the wisdom behind that. We've been praying, and that's not what we are sensing. So it's hard to go against what you understand God is kind of revealing to you. So thank you for the counsel. I think it's wise, and we see the wisdom. I just, we just don't sense it. So, but he, he was, here was the question. But how, would you, how are you going to build a church? That's not easy. Friends, I don't build a church. Christ built his church. That's not my problem. My problem is to obey. To be where he wants me to be. Be an instrument. And he does the building. He's the rock upon which he's building his church. I'm glad he told that to Peter. That solved a lot of problems for me. Now, friends, unless we live that way, we will never be satisfied. I've said that a few times. I'll probably say a few more times before I finish because I think it is paramount that we, we get that right. Many people think that their satisfaction will come when they will reach certain financial level or when accomplishment, uh, whatever I, wanna, I wanted to accomplish, that I got there. Have we read Salomon? That's what he thought, and he got there. And sometimes we think that if we make a name for ourselves, that when I moved from DR to US, that's what I was after. Literally. I was not planning to be a pastor. I was not planning to uh, go back to the Dominican Republic. I wanted my own kingdom. I wanted my name big in an academic institution. But God had other plans for me. Is that kind of God that he is? He, you know, he makes you into something and then he uses or in one place and then he uses it in another place. He built Moses in the palace and used Moses in the desert. And then he raised Joseph in the desert and used him in the palace. That's the kind of God that you and I have. So he kind of, kind of educated me in the U.S. and then brought me back to Santo Domingo. Hey, hey, you thought you were going to stay here. Now, sometimes we think we are going to be satisfied if we are successful. The sad part is that you could be completely successful down here and be a complete failure in the kingdom of heaven. I could meet all my goals every year and not get one of the goals in God's agenda. you imagine that? How depressing that would be? January 1st, what goals do we have? December 31st, how many did we meet? All of them. And God says, all of yours, none of mine. Why? Because my life needs to be focused in one single direction. If I'm going to live for God's glory, for his excellencies, to show them, to, ref- to reflect them. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, an evangelist, a missionary, or a lawyer. I said a little while ago, I want to illustrate it. Again, because um, with my own church sometimes, I, I am frustrated because people don't see this. And it, it's very simple, friends. And, and I used this with a businessman in, from my own church this week. He said, let me, let, me, let me give you an example. Let's assume you are a car salesman. And as you know, you may know this or you may not, but usually car salesmen, they are given a, a range. This is the lowest price. This is the highest price. And 
you could sell it within that range. Whatever you make is yours. So he could make, let's say, $2,000 in a sale, or he could make zero. It's up to you. So he starts the, negoti- he starts the, the negotiation, and at the end, he made 1500 or 2000 So one day he comes home, and his wife says, Honey, they are both Christians, the husband and the wife. Honey, uh, how was your day? It was great. Really? Yeah, I had two clients um, that didn't even ask me for a lower price, and uh, I sold these two cars today at a full commission, at a full commission, and so happy. What's so Christian about that? What would be the difference between him and the pagan that just came home the same day and cut the same deals? What's the difference? None. He's another salesman. He has a worldview, a biblical worldview. And that day, he has a, he has a person, has a client. But he thinks like Paul, I don't see man any longer according to the flesh. So this is more than a client. This is a potential believer. And he has been transformed into a holy nation, to a royal priesthood. So he behaves as such in the place of work. And then he goes on at the end of the day. He sold his car. The wife says, "Uh, how was your day? Oh, I had a great day. Really? Yeah. Um... How was how were the sales? Well, I sold one car and only made three hundred dollars, but you won't believe it. By the end of my conversation, that person was praying with me to receive Christ in his heart. I made that up, but I've been there as a physician more than once. Sometimes reluctantly, because my mind was not focused at that moment until God said, Hey dummy, don't you get it? Why he's there, and happens to be more than once. Um, well, time is running out, but let me tell you quickly. This one day, um, I got a phone call from the hospital, and um, and I needed to run. So there is a uh, drug representative that is there. Wanted to see me. I was living in the, in New Jersey at that time, and I said to my secretary, "Tell him that I have." One minute, I got people waiting for me in the hospital. It was not exactly an emergency, but it was something that I needed to go quickly. So I said, as a matter of fact, I'm going to stand and I'm going to wait for him standing in my office. So she, she tells him that. So telephone rings. I picked it up. I started to talk. And he started to look at all my pictures. And they were all displaying God's phrases and verses. And So when I hung up, he started to ask me questions about what he saw. And I'm not, I'm not getting it because I got it wrong. I got to be there. So five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I'm now getting, getting bothered that uh, he's he just keeping me there. This is years ago. I, I grew since, but <laughs> I wanted to know that. Uh, so I'm getting bothered that uh, I'm just being delayed. And finally, God spoke to my heart. He said, you know what? Don't you get it? Do you get how he is thirsting for what you displayed in your walls? Who do you think put that thirst in him? Well, I kept on talking. I sat down. He spent an hour. I led, well, God led him to him. um, And he became a born-again believer. Well, the only kind of believer there are, born-again. He got born again. 
against a Jonah physician of that day. He was not really focused. You see now how uh, it doesn't matter what you do. You have a purpose for living. If we proclaim his gospel and we live his gospel, some people at some point in some places are going to come to believe. Let me just, let me just say it this way. You know God is just. We're talking about his excellencies now. Let's mention a few. God is just. So if we proclaim that well with conviction, perhaps conviction will follow or will, will fall in, in some people's heart and they will be repentant. Perhaps. You know God is holy. If we preach that and model that for other people, maybe the world will get a better picture of what sinfulness really is. Because it could contrast the way they are living with the way the people of God are living. And the world may go, wow, this is really, I'm, I'm really sinful. God is gracious. If we announce it and we live gracious life, maybe, maybe people will come to believe that they can be forgiven. Their sins were so bad. Some people think God will never forgive me for that. But if you see that grace in us and he hears that grace from us, maybe they will come to believe that God, they can be forgiven. God is loving. If we share that love of Christ with others unconditionally as we are called to do, uh, perhaps people's fears may go away because perfect love casts out fear. You know that. And one of the main problems in the society today and in the doctor's office today is fear. That's why we have so many people depressed and anxious. But it just happened to be that Valium doesn't take fears away, only the love of God. And I need to be, I, I need to proclaim that, that gospel, but I need to live it as well. God is faithful. If people come to know that, maybe they will feel safe for the first time hearing that in God's hand, their life can be stabilized for the first time. That is the message. That is the gospel. You, those are his virtues. Some of them, we need to proclaim them. We need to reflect them. We need to show them. We need to live for them so that the world may know and we may be fulfilling uh, the reason for which he called me from darkness into his marvelous light. Look how Paul says it to the Philippians in 2.15. So that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach. That's holiness. In the midst, listen now, of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We think this generation is bad. Paul said 2,000 years ago, this is a crooked and perverse generation. Rise up, shine, show your light, be, um, be above reproach, innocent, blameless. That's holiness. Why? Because that's what you are. You are a holy nation. And therefore, when I have a holy living, the light of Christ shines through me in a much better way. I, we have the light. Here it is. This is the light. I need to shine this light into the darkness of people's heart. So that their hearts could become illumined just like mine was at one point. And now Christ and the Lordship of Christ can be real and present for him or for her. Our lives, our churches, our businesses, our marriages, 
Every single thing must reflect the holiness, the light, the virtues, the excellence of our God. Every single thing. Just two years ago, two and a half years ago, my wife and I took a, uh, a week away, went to North Carolina. And um, we wanted to review our marriage and take away all the stuff that didn't look like Christ. Obviously, that will never happen until we get to heaven. And then we will not be married there. But we will work toward that until the very end. Because anything in my life that deems the light of Christ in me, at the end of the road, is a sin. Because I was called to reflect that excellency of God. A royal priesthood or a royal priest and a holy life will be quite effective in carrying that message. But at the same time, a life that is not living that way will have a hard time carrying the message. It is hard to proclaim that God is just and holy if I am still entangled in sin. Right? It's not easy. It's very difficult to tell people that God is a forgiving God if I don't live a life of repentance. I need to repent every day. That's why I need the gospel every single day of my life. I am not sure we proclaim the perfect love of God that we're going to do that if I am still living in fear because if perfect love cast out fear, and I live in fear, that means I have not experienced the perfect love of Christ, so of which love I'm going to talk about. I need to be the evidence that it really works. And I don't think I would be comfortable speaking about the faithfulness of God if I'm still trusting and and my financial planning. And my insurance plans. There's nothing wrong with them. Except. When we start to rely. On them to feel secure. And that's usually the case. For years now. No one wanted. Or has wanted to insure. Me because I have diabetes. For 41 years. And we don't feel any. More insecure. Because of the lack of an insurance plan. My insurance plan is in heaven there's no other place more secure than to be in the hands of God the fact that I don't have an insurance plan has not escaped the mind of my God I am his possession he will take care of me how I don't know but I don't need to know I do know that he will Because he promised that and there is no one single promise that God has broken so far and he's not planning on doing one. So I could trust him. When I was lost, wandering in the world, without purpose, without meaning, beating the air as I mentioned before, not knowing where I was going, God found me. Now that I am his son, I'm going to start worrying about whether he's going to care for me or not. No, that would be unbiblical. Now, now you know, I, need about, I have five more minutes to go, so let me close in those five minutes. Um, now, you've, your pastor has been very gracious. He gave me more time than, 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 um, than usual, so I appreciate it. But, but I want to be sensible, sensitive to you then. So, um, so you may be thinking, well, pastor, um, I'm not really prepared. I'm not ready for this. 
So you think Peter and James and John were prepared when they were called? So you think Peter had it all figured out, what he was going to do with his life? He didn't have it even at the time of the crucifixion of Christ, three years later. He's still denying Christ. You see? People who were trying to call fire from heaven to burn a village just because they did not receive them well, you think they were ready? That's John and James, sons of thunder. No, they were not ready. We, we, we kind of think like society. You know, society applauds the, the who is who. And God applauds those whose names, when they are mentioned, the world goes, who are they? Let me, let me show it to you, because I need to show it from the Word, otherwise it wouldn't be true. Um, Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, very quickly, as I bring this to a close. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Do you hear what I heard? In the middle of seven who is who, Pilate and Herod and Annas and Cephas, the word of the Lord came to John and nobody. In the palace, no. In the wilderness, not in Rome, no. In Athens, no. In Jerusalem, no. In the middle of the palace, no. In the desert, to a nobody. The word, I just love that. God looked at these seven who is who, and then he says, yeah, but I'm not pleased with any of them. I'm going to come to John in the desert, and I'm going to give him my word. All you need to be is to be willing to what? To die to self and live for him. He already died for me. The least that I could do is to live for him. Now I need to die to me so I could live for him. Um, God doesn't need big names, brothers, in big places. He doesn't need uh, a, lot of, um, uh, a lot of what the world values. He needs a man totally surrender to his purpose. The world is still to see what God can do with a man totally convicted by his truth, sold out to his cause, completely surrendered to his will, unmoved by man's glory, unimpressed by the world's recognition, unconditionally devoted to his glory and fixed on him and him only. Let me repeat that for you as I come to close. The world is still to see, and I want to read it because I don't want to miss any of it. What God can do with a man totally convinced, convinced by his truth, sold out to his cause, completely surrendered to his will, unmoved by man's glory, unimpressed by the world's recognition, unconditionally devoted to his glory, and fixed on him and on him only. He's still looking for that man. I search for a man among them who will build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I will not destroy it. But I found no one, say, saith the Lord. It's Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. 30. 
I'm still looking for a man that will stand in the gap on behalf of the land so I don't need to destroy it. But I found nobody. Be that man. Be that man to the glory of God until his kingdom come. Embrace his cause to the glory of his name. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you from darkness to his excellent and marvelous light. That's your purpose. That's your life mission statement. You have no other. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you immensely for what you teach us in your word. We dig and we dig and dig and 2,000 years later we're still digging and we still have not come to the end of your revelation and never will. Your wisdom is infinite. Your purposes are without comparison without parallel in the universe. Thank you for making us part of that great, universal, infinite purpose of yours. Father, perhaps some here have heard you today. And perhaps you have work to do in them, even right now. I'm going to pass the uh, stand to Pastor Al for the conclusion. But if you pray between you and God, if God convicted you of the way you are living or the way you are living his purpose or not living for his purpose at all or just halfway, but not in a way that is glorious and honoring to him, I plead with you, brother and sister, I plead with you, don't go home without doing business with God. And do it right now so that you may leave this place having been forgiven and with a new sense and live your life from this point on with a sense of eternity. Lord, do as you will. In your name, Jesus. Amen.